0: So this is the first full moon in the rainy season retreat. We have already done one month of the vasa and that is the traditional occasion to commit oneself to the precepts, the basic ethical foundation of our practice, the foundation of virtue on which The rest of our practice has to be built up. And uh, if the foundation of virtue, if the precepts, if the quality of not harming oneself or others is not well established, then the more refined aspects of our meditation, bhavana, like samadhi and wisdom, insight, will not really work very well. And I'm happy that quite a few have come and made that commitment to the five precepts, not to kill any living being, not to steal, not to commit any sensual misconduct, not to lie, and not to take alcohol or any other drugs that cause intoxication and make one uh, heedless and negligent. At the same time, things are heating up in Australia. To the best of my knowledge, yesterday uh, rubber bullets have already been fired. Fortunately, no real bullets yet, uh, but uh, things were serious enough that uh, rubber bullets have been fired. And so i like to dedicate today's talk to the first precept, <laughs> tipata. Vyadamani sekapadang Samadhyami I commit to the training rule to abstain from killing any living being. That is the first precept. And that is the very foundation of our whole practice. As the Buddha expresses it in the gradual training for the monks very beautifully, uh, um, having put down the rod, the stick having put down any weapon having put down the sword the one lives compassionate one lives empathetic to all living beings, one lives no, with kindness to all living beings. Sapapa nubutu kampi kampi, Anukampi, to tremble long, no, one's heart is trembling for the welfare of absolutely all beings, rather than harming any of them. Well, that is usually how the whole description of virtue starts. And if you look particular, for the monks, it's very extensive, even more so for the bhikkhunis. But whenever the Buddha introduces the whole description, sometimes pages and pages, how we restrain ourselves in the practice of virtue, it always starts with that one, putting down all weapons putting down the sword, putting down the guns and rifles and firearms, and chemical weapons and biological weapons and nuclear weapons, any weapon. no one lives trembling for the welfare of others. One lives with empathy for all living beings. One lives now with kindness and compassion. And it is actually encouraging that uh, studies have shown that it is actually normal for most human beings not to kill. It's actually quite difficult to get humans to kill other human beings. And the first thing I like to quote is a study by an American... General, was a brigadier general, who became the official military historian for America in Second World War. <clears throat> and his name is S. L. A. Marshall. And he has written many books. One is called Men Against Fire, The Problem of Battle Command. And that is an empirical study of American soldiers in Second World War. And they did uh, thousands of interviews, including with whole companies who just came out from an engagement with either Japanese or German forces. And then they had interviewed them straight away. And the absolutely mind-blowing, amazing result of that study is that he found that less than a quarter less than 25% of these soldiers who were in battle would actually fire to kill three-quarter or more this is in second world war against the Japanese and the Nazi armies even then uh, three-quarter or more would deliberately shoot high or shoot low or rather one messages or try to avoid it, or if they couldn't avoid it, and just fire high or low deliberately. It doesn't necessarily mean that they could get away, but it meant that many of them would even risk their own life, because if they come and attack you and you shoot high or low, then you may end up being killed yourself. And I think this is quite a mind-blowing study and very encouraging that even in such an extreme war the majority of soldiers were not willing to kill other human beings, even when their own life is endangered. He also found that these seventy-five or eighty percent who... Excuse me. He also found that these twenty-five or twenty percent who did shoot to kill of that group, who actually did shoot to kill, more than 90% had symptoms later of post-traumatic stress disorder. May I have heard of that. It can be very serious. in some 10 years ago, I read a study that uh, among American US veterans who had been in war earlier there's about 6,500 suicides a year. It's about 18 a day. This gives you some idea how serious post-traumatic stress syndrome can be. And for, I think, many years the US would actually lose more ex-soldiers and soldiers to suicide than to battle casualties and one reason is exactly this post-traumatic stress syndrome which is simply a result of killing others. It's just very bad for our mind, as the Buddha said, to kill. And if we observe this first precept and we are totally committed, unconditional, never to intentionally kill any living being, not to intentionally kill even an ant or a mozzie, much less a human being, it's not only that we are protecting others, we are protecting ourselves, we are protecting our own mental well-being. And of course we are protecting us from the negative karmic consequences of killing. The Buddha clearly stated you know, that the typical effect of killing is in a short lifespan. Whenever we are reborn, we will have only a short lifespan and may die a violent death very quickly ourselves. And the amazing thing is that this post-traumatic stress syndrome is not just due to the danger they are in. Some people may say, no, all these soldiers they have post-traumatic stress syndrome. That is because they are under so much stress that they may get killed at any moment. You're driving around in your armored vehicle and you don't know at any moment they're in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere there may be a rocket propelled grenade or a mine and exploding and you die. Or someone may shoot you, snipers. But the amazing thing is they have done studies on drone operators. You may be aware in Afghanistan, you probably see the images from Afghanistan in the news. And what they did, they would fly these drones, the big Reaper drones and others. And they are controlled from the U.S. The person who is flying the drone is sitting in a bunker on a U.S. Air Force Base. They are completely safe. No Afghan can get at them. They're sitting in a bunker. It's like a computer game, so to speak. They are sitting there. They have their their radar images, thermal images and video images. And then they just fire the Hellfire rockets and, and kill people. Supposedly terrorists, but my studies have shown that the vast majority is no, just anyone there in Afghanistan, completely innocent people. Big celebrations, weddings. But they have no danger. These people can't retaliate. They sit in a bunker in the US. And guess what? They also get post-traumatic stress syndrome. And in this case, obviously, it cannot be because their life is in danger. And the fact that these stone operators get it shows us clearly what is causing it is actually killing of other beings. Even if you can do that like a computer game where you don't really encounter the people personally, even if there's no danger that they can retaliate, you get what the Buddha called Vipati Sada. be no, regret, compunctions, a bad conscience. This is what killing does, not only to others, but to our own mind, to our own heart. And this is why we will always abstain from that if we have any regard to other beings, but even if someone wouldn't worry about other beings at all, even for their own egoistic welfare, they would not be killing other beings, because it is against their own welfare and happiness. I remember years ago when I did some teaching in Townsville, that they had this um, was a veteran from Afghanistan, and he later came up. I think he wasn't so much a Buddhist, basically his partner dragged him in and because he was concerned, because he suffered from that. And when I talked to him, he said the best way of describing how he feels, he said, no, I'm sitting like on a toxic waste dump and in all directions, there's only this, this waste. But externally, he looked really young, attractive, young, fit, healthy, sporty, very um, masculine, attractive partner, attractive girlfriend. And uh, I'm not sure now what exactly he did or experienced. But was one example which I personally saw how heavily in his mind got. Got damaged from that. So we train ourselves no, to protect other beings and ourselves. So, coming back to uh, SLA Marshall's study, so um, 75 to 80 percent deliberately avoided shooting to kill of the 20 or 25 who did shoot to kill, more than 90% got this post-traumatic stress disorder or symptoms of it. And then there was a small percentage left, some 2% of those who did kill and who didn't have any post-traumatic stress disorder. When they did the psychological test, they found that virtually all of them were considered psychopathic personalities. It's also a disorder. A psychopath is someone who just doesn't have much of a conscience, they don't have empathy, they're just lacking that and then they're lacking conscience. That is the only one who uh, could kill, but later not having these negative symptoms. as a psychopath. It's also interesting what occurred to me of these three groups the ones who deliberately avoid killing, even in war, the ones who kill but get then huge troubles in their conscience, and the psychopath who didn't bother, didn't matter to them, no, no pangs of conscience about killing others. What is your guess? Who is most likely to get a Victoria Cross? i leave it to you to figure that out, but I think I have some idea of who of those will be most likely to get the Victoria Cross. I'm pretty sure it's not the ones who refuse shooting. Uh, My own grandfather did that as well. That was in the Second World War. he, He was German. Uh, he was never a supporter of the Nazis, not not an active resistance, but no, he was not happy with them. But uh, he was very lucky that he worked for railways, which is uh, very important in war. So he didn't get drafted until the very end in 1945 in the city where he lived, Breslau was already surrounded by the Russians and then they got into this completely useless order of defending that to the last man and then they made him a a paratrooper which originally were the elite troops but by then when he told me the only um, training or exam he had he had to jump down a three meter high wall which he managed to do and he had to take apart the rifle and put it together again which he didn't manage to do but they made him a paratrooper, nevertheless. And he said that no, he was completely useless. They were actually fighting even after the German armies had surrendered. I think they held out a few days longer. And he said that no, he was just uh, standing there and waiting for an opportunity that he could uh, surrender himself as a prisoner of war to the Soviets. But then this officer turned up because he couldn't hear any shooting and he pushed them and encouraged him you have to shoot and now he has a and shoot and he said, no, what he did, no, he was shooting like this <laughs> just that uh, it sounds like someone is shooting there and uh, he did um, Olympic style wrestling, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling his, his brother actually won a, I'm not sure whether it was a gold medal His brother himself wasn't at the Olympics, but he was quite a good Greco-Roman-style wrestler. And he said the Russian soldier he finally surrendered to was a very skinny, tiny, teenage boy. He said it was quite ironic. He could have easily wrestled him down, but uh, that is the one where he managed then to surrender. So there's one one example which is on that level, uh, in line with what this study described and it's very encouraging that apparently you know, the vast majority is doing that. I have to say you know, that this uh, study is controversial and you can imagine that the generals were not like that. <laughs> it's difficult to live in a war if you're so just on fire and so he also got quite a bit of flag. And uh, tragically, by now, the numbers they may have gone up considerably. One thing is that they're using very young soldiers. In the 1980s, there was a very famous pop song which went to number one, 18, which is about the fact that they found in studies that the average American soldier in Vietnam was only 18, whereas in Second World War it was much older when you have older people, or at least not teenagers, and usually the spiritual faculties and conscience is more mature and developed, and it's probably easier to get young people, very young people in the brainwashed, to kill. And then the figures may be higher. So the exact numbers there are controversial, and uh, it may have increased nowadays, because they may have better methods of brainwashing people because that's basically what you have to do to get a large group of people to risk their own life and kill others you got to brainwash them and they may be better in that now and the result is that you have now a higher percentage who get suicidal and having post-traumatic stress disorder because more of them may be shooting to kill But by and large, this is a literature which stretches back a few centuries and already in the 18th century, some studies have shown similar things. Uh, Even soldiers in war are reluctant to kill. Good on them. These are my heroes. Not the Victoria Cross guys, but the ones who didn't shoot. And some of them are quite unrecognized. Have you heard of the famous Cuban Missile Crisis under President Kennedy in the early 60s? It's considered the closest the world may have got in the Cold War to nuclear war. And uh, the Soviets tried to get these rockets onto Cuba and the US tried to prevent that. And the Soviets' ships would be coming. And the American Navy would try to block them, if I remember that all correctly. And the Soviets had a, U- a submarine, they were trying to prevent that. And I think the Americans even threw a few water bombs. And when the submarine got attacked, they had some nuclear weapons on board, nuclear torpedoes, I think. And because it's a nuclear weapon and once the first nuclear goes off, it can be global nuclear war. They usually had stringent procedures and on that Soviet submarine, in order to fire any nuclear weapon, they needed the captain and the next two officers, all three agreeing on it. And I think they all have their own uh, key or something. And only when all three agree, only then they can release it. And apparently, from what I read, if I remember it correctly, it was two to one. Two wanted to fire the nuclear torpedo, and one refused. And uh, this is one of my heroes, <laughs> that Soviet soldier, who must have had considerable pressure there. And uh, this act of refusing may have saved the world from nuclear war. This is a real hero to me. There was another case, I think, in the 80s. Uh, most people may not be aware of it, but these early warning systems uh, often f- uh, fail and give a false alarm. It is obviously highly dangerous because there is a limited time when the nuclear strike comes. They can't wait too long, because they're all eliminated, so the idea is they have to start their own nuclear strike early. And in the 80s there was this alarm going off for the Soviets, and it looked like a nuclear attack coming from the US. And the guy who was in charge of that, his operating procedure, what he was required to do, was to pass it on to the high command in Moscow. But because he had seen that the system had malfunctioned earlier, and from other indications what he knew about the general um, global political situation and so on, it didn't seem to make sense that there's a surprise nuclear attack. So he held back quite a long time against procedures, against the orders, and he just didn't pass it on till he was able to verify that it's a false alarm. And again, this may have saved us from nuclear war. Do you know that person? Do you know his name? That's amazing. Ne? So the ones who are killing often get all the praise and fame. But these two heroes, are often not acknowledged, so I want to acknowledge that in this talk. The ones who are willing to risk their lives in order not to kill, the ones who are willing to not follow orders, to risk being kicked out or being court-martialed or whatever, they took that risk in order not to kill. I have heard of the Berlin War during the Cold War. Germany was divided between East and West, and the East was uh, allied with Soviet Union and socialist. uh, The West was capitalist and with U.S. and NATO. And uh, Berlin was also divided, and West Berlin was like a little island in East German territory. And then uh, between East and West Berlin, there was a famous wall sometimes running in the middle of the street, so to speak, between two lines of houses and there was uh, the foremost frontier between the NATO and Warsaw Pact, Cold War and you may have heard uh, that in the end it came down, uh, the wall came down I was actually living there on the western side and where had, so to speak, you know, the real thing that happened that night was only about 500 meters from where I lived, but unfortunately I missed it, I was sleeping. It was quite, quite a funny story, you know, because they didn't plan that. They had tried to do some reforms in the East because you know, they couldn't control things anymore. Too many people were demonstrating, and the Soviets had made it clear that they wouldn't Use their tanks to suppress it. So, you know, all these old apparatchiks from the Socialist Party, you know, they didn't quite know how to deal with it. And then they made a decision that they want to give a law that people can start traveling, because the East Germans were kind of imprisoned. They were not allowed to leave their country, only on special permission. A bit like we are now. Ne? And with all the reforms, they had to give a press conference now, which didn't happen in good old East Germany. It was just all top-down decisions. They don't have to justify it to real questions. So this guy went in front of the camera and very nervous that he has to answer real questions now. And one reporter asked him, oh, is that valid from now, from today, that they can travel and the poor guy and he had no idea how to answer that and he looked at his little note and it wasn't anything and then he said, yeah, uh, yeah, I believe this is from today. And when people heard that, they all went to the wall and wanted to go across. So it was just by accident, basically, because this guy and wasn't used giving a press conference and gave them all information. And all these people in the evening started accumulating at one of the border crossings from east to west and they started getting quite unruly and then there were 10,000 people and more than 10,000 and they were all pushing and they were pushing against you know, the beams which were down and there was this East German officer and I think he had about 40 soldiers and there were you no know, more than 10,000 people pushing and I'm not quite sure whether they had rifles but they did have you know, at least pistols or something and pushing more and more and in the end he decided, you no, know, he just said, just open the, the gates, let them all go and that was uh, how the ball came down that was that moment, 9th November 89 and this guy, again, they probably never heard of him and this is again a true hero to me he could have ordered his soldiers not to shoot and once he's shooting into this crowd, he might have been successful in dispersing them but he didn't want to shoot on his own countrymen and rather than killing and ordering to kill he just decided to go against all orders, he decided to go against all the instructions he had and just let them all go to the West Most of them just partied all night and then they went back anyhow This is a real hero to me Similar his uh, superiors, before he made the decisions he tried to call the higher-ups but he couldn't get through I think they were all hiding out and probably again they didn't want to take that responsibility which I think is also good. It's not quite as heroic than giving the order to just open. But it's, I think, still better to kind of hide out and not be available rather than giving the order not to shoot. So to sum it all up the very first precepts the very first explanations the Buddha gives whenever he talks about the virtue even of the monks there is a not to okay. kill. Then that is one precept if we are totally committed to that. If everyone was committed to that, then the world would already be at peace. And we may not be able to stop others from killing, but we do have the power, we do have the ability to at least stop ourselves from killing and violence. And when we do that, we are protecting others because you know, all beings are afraid of dying. And just like we are afraid of being attacked and afraid of dying, and you can see that you know, the despair of the people in Afghanistan there. Where does it come from? There's a fear of death. And we can imagine that fear, we can feel it ourselves, and so we make the decision, I never want to cause that fear in anyone. I want a commitment to total non-violence. And then we are protecting all beings from that fear. We We are protecting all beings' life. And we are protecting ourselves from making any bad karma. We are protecting ourselves from a bad, unfortunate rebirth. We are protecting ourselves from experiencing the attacks and killing ourselves in a future life. We are providing the foundation for a long and happy life. And uh, ultimately, most profoundly, we give our own heart that quality which is called avipatisada, the freedom from remorse, a clear conscience. But if we have freedom from remorse, if we have what is also known as Anavajya Sukha, the happiness of blamelessness, if we can reflect on our own actions and we realize that keeping not only the first precept, but all of them, and then we realize that I haven't caused any real harm to anyone, neither to me nor others, that there's a great happiness in the heart about that, a clear conscience is more than just freedom from remorse. There's a, there's a very profound, deep sense of ease and happiness. And then we practice kindness and compassion, the empathy to all beings, trembling for their welfare. And we practice the metta and karuna, compassion and loving kindness to all beings and the hardener will be even brighter, even more happy, even more joyful. And then that is the foundation that we can really unify and concentrate our mind in samadhi. The mind which is overwhelmed by regret and remorse to the extent of experiencing the post-traumatic stress syndrome, they will not be able to unify in samadhi. The mind which has the precepts kept pure for a long time and is reflecting on that. The mind which is acting in bodily and verbal actions with kindness and compassion to all beings. The mind which is setting up the intention, the mental karma, of kindness and compassion to all beings, that is a mind which has that happiness, that ease, that brightness, that it can unify in samadhi, in internal blissful unification. And the mind that can unify in internal blissful unification of samadhi that is a the mind, they can see things as they truly are, as impermanent, as not lasting, as not self, as not me, as not mine. And once the heart can see all phenomena as not me, not mine, as not belonging to us, then the heart can let go. And once the heart lets go, it will experience what is the beyond all conditioned phenomena, and they will experience the freedom, release, and nibbana. Okay, so far, these little reflections dedicated to the first precept of not killing, and dedicated to all those who were willing to uphold that precept, even when their life is in danger, even when they are in danger of losing their job, or getting court-martialed, or losing their career, or getting pressure, or social pressure, but uh, putting their commitment of not killing the above, even their own life, i like to dedicate it to all those heroes. Any comments or questions? Yes, someone is mentioning what the Buddha, or what is known as no? Abhayodhana, the gift of fearlessness. So, when you commit to these precepts, it's not only something of restraining yourself, but you're actually giving something to other beings. And the Buddha called that the gift of fearlessness no? to absolutely everyone, all beings you're granting them fearlessness. Because the number of beings is so vast and you are now committed of not harming any of them. So the huge gift of fearlessness which you are putting out to all of them, that's why it's so much good karma. It's similar with the other precepts. And if you keep all of them, let's say the five, then there's a big donation of fearlessness to countless beings. On the other hand, if you release an animal which is uh, destined to be slaughtered or killed, that is a gift of life. You can also call it the gift of fearlessness, but it's also in a directly giving life. So that is a karmic act which will increase lifespan. And sometimes people do that no, by releasing uh, fish or cows, birds. Although well, I, I saw that, no, one has to be a little bit. Some some people make a business out of that, and no, they just circulating them. So then it doesn't really work so well. No, but... Yeah, yeah. Practice that smartly. But don't allow others not to exploit it financially. But for sure, whenever you can give a gift, I sometimes do that. Killing is intentional to make karma. But sometimes, say, for example, in the, in the toilet there may be a little... or in the shower and then there may be some little insect. And in a sense, if you end up flushing and there's no intention of killing, you're not really breaking that precept. But sometimes I deliberately make the effort of you know, fishing them out, even out of the toilet, which is not the nicest place to fish around. <laughs> but you know, I am deliberately saying, okay, this is a gift now. This fellow, and you know, I'm in a hurry, and now I'm you know, fishing around and filling on with the toilet and then cleaning your hands, you know, but you're willing to go through that effort, and as a special act of saving a life. I sometimes find it quite delightful, and even if you're a little little insect, and you can see, you can release them, they're happy, they're alive. There's a question if you try to keep the precepts. Sometimes you may notice that there's considerable internal attention and, and hardship and of course the task is not to endure that. It can be difficult. If someone is an alcoholic or a drug addict, then they go cold turkey, they go and withdrawal. This is so difficult, you can even die from it, particularly alcohol. And if someone is a real heavy alcoholic, you should usually withdraw under medical supervision because it can really kill you. So you can imagine how tough it is. It's maybe one of the most obvious examples when someone addicted to alcohol or drugs and then going on withdrawal. is very painful. But you can also imagine that sometimes not lying can be very embarrassing and has major consequences. So it may be very difficult. And then uh, lust. Central desires never not the most powerful motivations for human beings. And uh, suppressing that, to remain faithful to your spouse can be extremely difficult and you may not feel good. But that is a task for a real Dharma practitioner to be willing to go through that hardship, to that patience endurance, athanchar. Ajahn Chah called it Otton. You just endure that because the benefit is much greater. And as you continue training yourself over time, that we are talking here years and decades, it will become easier and easier because the defilements become weaker. In general, the stronger the defilements, the more difficult it will be to practice and to keep the precepts. Some people have very weak defilements. Someone like Vendabha Sariputta is an extreme example, of the chief disciple of the Buddha due to his many past lives of outstanding practice. Even before he became a monk, his defilements were very, very weak. For that kind of person, it's very easy to keep the 5 precepts. For someone who has got strong anger, strong lust, strong desire, strong delusion, it's very difficult. But over time, as one is wearing down the defilements, it become easier. And even when it's difficult, it's still you know, the, the hardship you endure there is, is vastly less than the suffering you have to endure when you break the precept. Venerable Jnana Vimala, this monk here on this little photo, you know, what he told me personally, and he already wanted to become a monk in the Second World War and he was a prisoner of war, he lived in Ceylon at that time and as a German citizen he was taken prisoner of war by the British and then meeting all the monks in the prisoner of war camp in India he wanted to become a monk but no, it wasn't possible obviously as a prisoner of war and. Uh, At the end of the Second World War, the Sri Lankans managed to get the ordained monks back to Sri Lanka. But because he hadn't been a monk when he was taken prisoner, he was sent back to Germany. It was very, very difficult to live right after the Second World War, and many people would die from hunger and so on. And it took him another eight, nine years till he finally managed to, to get back to Sri Lanka and ordain. And then he lived another 50 years as a monk in Sri Lanka and passed away in about 2006. But what he told me personally, and it was very, very difficult, there was a time people survived by stealing a few potatoes from a truck. People were cutting down the uh, Central Park in Berlin to have some firewood. It cold winters, it could be minus 20 degrees, and if you're don't have any way of eating, they will die, or freeze to death. But of course it is illegal to, to cut these trees, is stealing. can't do that if you steal. Grabbing some potatoes from the truck is stealing. You keep the second precept, you can't do it. But what he said, the, amazingly he said, no, the most difficult, at some stage he got a job as an English teacher because he had lived in Ceylon, he spoke very fluent English. Now in the major parts of Germany, occupied by British and American, there was a high demand for English. So he had worked as an English teacher. And his vast majority of his students were young women. And he was quite an interesting person, having, as a Buddhist and having lived abroad and so on. He was very interesting. And he was a teacher. And uh, most of these women were very lonely and very interested in him. And he said but almost all of them were married and the husband regularly prisoner of war or missing in action. Missing in action means you don't know whether they're alive. Or prisoner of war in Soviet Union and some of them were there for 10 years. He said that was the most difficult. <laughs> you can imagine, he was a young man, he had been a prisoner of war. A prisoner camp, only with a the man there for years, and now he was out and free. And all of these young girls, very interested in him, never but married, having their engagement ring, their wedding ring. But their husband the son there is somewhere in, in Russia, as a prisoner of war away for years. So don't be surprised. I would actually say if you never struggle in keeping your precepts it could be that you're someone like Vanuva huh? but more likely is maybe you're not fully committed. If you really want to keep them very pure all the time, I think that you will encounter big difficulties occasionally at least, and occasionally one has to make the sacrifices. And I always admire people who may be willing to even sacrifice their life to keep the precepts. And that is one thing which I admire about Jehovah's Witness, because to be honest they can get onto my nerves quite a bit. (laughs) It may not be extremely missionary. I had them coming even here into a Buddhist monastery and uh, trying to uh, missionize and catch the supporters here and turn them into Jehovah's Witness. I had them uh, approaching me, accosting me when I was walking arms round as a Buddhist monk in Colombo in Sri Lanka, a Sri Lankan woman uh, being Jehovah's Witness and chatting me up as a Buddhist monk and trying to convert me. So they can get under your nerves. No? But what I always reflect then, if I was one of the very few under Hitler in Second World War, who would refuse military service, and if you did that those days, no, you're in the concentration camp. And There's a good chance. I don't know exact the details whether sometimes they would got court-martialed and shot or not. Anyway, now we all know that being in a concentration camp under the Nazis is obviously not the place where you'd want to be, and uh, your life is at least in great danger. And they were willing to do that, rather than uh, becoming a soldier and killing well, one of the very few. It's quite uh, sad that it wasn't more, but Jehovah's Witnesses were usually committed to that. And they would rather be allow themselves to be put in the concentration camp, than killing other beings, other humans. So I think it's quite normal, and don't be surprised if you occasionally have to make some sacrifices for keeping the precepts. And I'm sometimes surprised how easily people cave in. Just a little bit of social pressure is often enough. There were these famous Milgram experiments, have you heard of that? Psychological experiments, where they had people administering electroshocks to another human test object. The test object was actually an actor, but they didn't know that. And the electroshocks were not real, but they didn't know that. This were just average people. It was really shocking, you should really read about that, it's unbelievable. So these test objects, they were taught that the guy is sitting in that kind of little cell Where they could administer electroshocks has to be trained by them, and then they had to perform certain questions. and, and And if they answer wrongly, I think that was kind of giving wrong answers or performing bad, then they could give them electroshocks. But they were not real. But this trained actor would play getting these shocks, and then a figure of authority. A professor, doctor, a professor in a white fog from that laboratory would start pressuring them to give them more shocks. And they had this regulator where it was clearly regulated and it was clearly indicated in the danger that this can be lethal. And the vast majority of subjects, when sufficiently pressured, only verbal pressure, not like threatened with a gun, only verbal pressure from this figure of authority, professor, doctor, physician in a white fog, verbal pressure, the vast majority would go into the lethal shock area and would administer what they believed to be um, potentially lethal electroshocks to this actor. The actor would act that and they would still do it. There was an absolutely shocking uh, experiment which came up there. So it is good no, when you next time get some social pressure to break a precept, check out how much you can resist. Some big event, just one glass of champagne, and the host, the birthday girl, is asking you just as a little for her. Is that enough already for you to break your precepts? Have you ever experienced it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt that pressure to break precepts? Have you been able to resist? Social pressure is amazing. The people are sometimes willing to to almost anything, once there's some social pressure. Any other? People look a little bit shocked. Was it too shocking, this talk? Anyway, rubber bullets are already flying in Australia, so I felt it's a Important one. Whatever happens, no, let us at least preserve the first percent.